Hi, welcome to the Product Momentum Podcast, a podcast about how to use technology to solve challenging technology problems for your organization. All right, Product Momentum. Today we have a really fantastic guest and a recent speaker at our UX conference, Miguel Cardona. He's a professor of new media and visual communication design at RIT. Um, and he's got a really rare blend of skills in the creative, in the technical, and in the business sense, having a background as the co-founder of a firm here in Rochester and some uh, businesses out in Silicon Valley. So, Miguel, great to have you with us on the show today. Thanks. Good to be here. Awesome. So, you've done a bunch of really cool things, Miguel, and I want to hear a little bit about some of them today. We'll get to that. Um, but one okay. one thing... Paul mentioned your four-year tour of duty in the proverbial Silicon Valley with a startup, so you got to learn a lot there, I'm sure. Oh, yes, indeed. Is it Imgix is the name of the company that you worked for there, doing some design Yeah, work? The, uh, the company's name is uh, Imgix, yeah. And, uh, you know, your coffee cup thing, we want to talk about that a little bit, and I want to understand how that got started. You've done a lot of things in this industry. Yeah, it's like a, like a quilt, like a patchwork of like various things. There you go. I'm eager to tap into your brain and uh, extract some of the things you've learned for our audience here. Super excited. Yeah, so jumping right in, I think that the most interesting thing that I've been really curious to talk to you more about is getting into what you would call your thoughts on this concept of contributive learning or contributive design. And you kind of pitted it against this more traditional concept of collaboration contribution versus collaboration, but you know, you've been uh, walking the walk and uh, I'm curious how that's worked both in the classroom and in business. Yeah. So the notion of uh, contributive design, I think we kind of coined it. Uh, I mean, it's not necessarily coined, but in terms of how I'm using it in the classroom is kind of the result of how a lot of like industry was looking at our students' work one of the kind of like key components of the new media design program is this capstone project where there's about a team of about 10 students you will get like um, development students and design students to work together and it's a real big collaborative kind of like show of work now the industry says they love to see collaboration however when the students demonstrate their work they don't necessarily understand, well, what did you do? You know, like what did the individual do as part of that collaboration? And a lot of times when you collaborate, the little bits of work or like your contributions to that work may be a little bit more kind of muddied out. And a lot of times we have students claiming that they did things that wasn't their own. I've been a big advocate of a lot of collaborative work. Um, over the years, I've worn many hats. I've even done uh, I know you were talking about like my illustrations and like I do like design work and you know like co-founding a company and kind of like management but I also was a developer at one point working on like interactive games so I see the need for collaborating with other individuals and like speaking other languages now the notion of contributive is basically a way to kind of demonstrate what you're working on in that and recently, I've been trying to troubleshoot projects and exercises where it's very clear the involvement of the individual. So even the notion of contribution, I'm thinking of projects uh, like GitHub, where, you know, developers, they make contributions to like a larger whole. Or even just in the working environment, you see more often than not, 
you know, um, someone will get a task, they perform the task and they kind of like move on. And how I use that in the classroom is that I have these groups, the groups define technical specifications, right? So they're like, oh, okay, let's say, for example, they're going to work on a storybook. Um, the storybook is going to be an interactive storybook and a print storybook. There's nine students in the group. And each one is doing, so like, let's say if they're doing an ABC book, each student gets assigned like a smaller bit, right? So they're allowed to work independently, but they're still contributing to a larger whole. This way, when it comes time to show their work, you know, it's very evident what they were working on. Typically, when working with students, there's a lot of pressure, right? Everybody has different schedules. Everybody has outside work projects and things going on. So it's oftentimes difficult to get them to work together, you know, and oftentimes when you're assigned a group mate, right, and there's this like heavy pressure, you know, that's another thing that I'm dealing with where students are, you know, like pressuring each other almost to the point of like borderline abuse where like, oh, you know, we have to work on this till 3 a.m. And so I wanted to try to foster an environment where, you know, they can work on things together, but they're not necessarily dependent on others for their own outcomes. That make sense? Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that has a lot of parallels from the product management world where we're trying to decouple features or decouple sometimes, you know, services from the UI to put it in developer speak. But one of the things that really stands out to me is really just how you can take a team, whether it's students in the pedagogical sense or workshops where you have a team that's working cumulatively uh, or constructively over time, as opposed to this sort of parallel notion where your own work disappears into the larger whole. But people in this kind of thinking, you know, you can have more of a breakout where I can see what I've done. And it does have some interesting parallels. I'm curious, what would you say is the thinking that might be applied? You know, here at ITX, we do a lot of workshopping around big ideas, trying to make bold commitments around what we can change in the world and how we can inspire people. What do you think a parallel would be for a real-time contributive system in trying to solve a problem, not just for a, an assignment at three in the morning, but for <laughs> you know building and improving products in, in people's lives? So I, I think that there's like two things there. You know, you're, you're kind of mentioning the building of the products, but then also you know, how like the products kind of like help people. Um, I mean, I think a lot of what we do when we're working in the industry, right? I mean, we are kind of contributing like our, our portions, right? You know, we kind of set those constraints, you know, we identify a problem, we work towards solving something. And but with a team, you know, you have roles and, you know, you kind of like work towards those. I know that oftentimes we try to kind of like remove silos in projects, but oftentimes we still kind of do go back to those roles. One thing that I think is beneficial is in working on a project, you know, having roles kind of like change from point to point. This is kind of like referencing a talk that I gave at ITX. Um, there's this notion of the designated dissenter, right? So imagine you're working on a project and someone is assigned the role of a dissenter and basically their role for the scope of that project, right? This isn't their job. This isn't their career for the scope of that project. You know, they're assigned with identifying things that could be, let's say, problematic to the product. So in speaking terms of, let's say, design ethics, you know, maybe there is an accessibility issue, 
right? And because everybody's so kind of like involved in progressing that product forward, you know, they might not be thinking about, you know, that issue with accessibility, but the role of the dissenter says, hey, this is one thing that needs to can be fixed, right? And that role may change from person to person. So it's a role that can be held by either a designer or a developer, like an engineer, you know, kind of like working on a product. So if you're talking about having individuals assume different roles in a project or product or like as a feature is moving out, they're not necessarily isolated, but they're given the opportunity to assume that role. And then if you have something like a dissenter, so as that person is not constantly, you know, always the like the negative individual about the on the product, that can kind of move from person to person. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think we have a team up at the board that's trying to get a coherent collection of thought and having that dissenter speak up, you know, might be called the devil's advocate in a different situation, right. but um, yeah. making making sure that we've uh, thought of not just all the aspirational views, but all of the potential breakpoints and flaws that we might want to build and, and turn into opportunities when you flip them on their head. Yeah, absolutely. And, and identifying that, that those opportunities is key. So even when I'm working with my students, you know, they're contributing into a project and um, oftentimes it's a problem because, I mean, not that it's a problem, but what I mean is that you might have a row of designers going into a project. They're more likely to step on each other's feet if they don't have their, like, kind of like assigned role, you know? So what is their contribution to that project and, and how can it be, like, quantified in a very specific way? So, you know, part of what I've been doing is trying to look into these projects that can be kind of created where the sum is greater than the, the whole of its parts. We know the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yeah, you know what I mean, right? Like, uh, yeah, switch that. You got it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like the outcome is, is going to be this much grander opportunity for them to uh, kind of have this really cool output. And right now I'm trying to have them create something that's testable. So I'm using a lot of collaborative software that's kind of giving them the opportunity to see these larger kind of scope projects where they can get a sense of that larger outcome, but that individual contribution is very evident in that outcome. So I have a slightly different perspective. Before I get into that, I want to pull on this designated dissenter devil's advocate sort of a role. You know, like Paul said, we've been running workshops at text for 20 some odd years here. And I've found the most powerful workshops, ones that have the most creative output, tend to be the ones where somebody naturally takes on that role for whatever reason. And I've always been an advocate of, you know, when we're solving a technology problem or a business problem, there's many of the perspectives in the room that are important to the solution and having the positive perspectives and the negative perspectives. And even if we get a customer perspective in the room, that makes them even more powerful. When you get that natural dissension or the natural friction that occurs between different perspectives around the voice of the customer, you get the most powerful result. I love the idea of being a little more purposeful about assigning a designated dissenter. If you purposefully assign somebody, then do you limit their creativity in the process? Because it feels like if somebody has that purposeful role, um, it might restrict the creativity you know, from that person. Do you see that happening or what's been your experience with that? So when I'm talking about contributive design, it's allowing, you know, someone's contributions to kind of stick out more, right? So it can be more clearly identified. Now, that's not to say that collaboration is dismissed. 
you know, we still have instances of brainstorming. We still have like little activities that we run and those activities largely inform the constraints or they identify basically what they're going to be building. So a lot of times we're still benefiting from the group collaborative aspects of it when they are identifying requirements. So when they're identifying the requirements, when they identify, you know, the technology that they're going to be working with, the platform, how they're going to be prototyping it, there's still a lot of opportunity for them to kind of engage together. And that's where they benefit. But I want their kind of work still attributing to some of those outcomes. So if you think about someone, you know, as being a designated center or, you know, you have someone that's in a different role where they might be responsible for, you know, even just like identifying the features or establishing what are going to be the, and I, and I think we kind of use this term differently um, when I worked in ImageX then, you know, y'all may use at ITX, but, you know, kind of distributing OKRs for individuals. The way that we would do OKRs would be every week, you know, it's almost like a task list. Like this is what you're going to complete. And that may include other individuals, but you're fundamentally the point person on that specific requirement. And then the following week, you're basically responsible for kind of producing, you know, all efforts put forth for that. And I think that contributive design is more about identifying responsibilities, almost like independent of someone's skill sets. It's just kind of giving different sets of ownership that then become kind of quantifiable in the outcome of the project. Interesting. So the thing is, as I mentioned, like, you know, in terms of like a pedagogical view, it allows students to kind of see their own development, right? Um, and to some degree, they're working with all the people on their team. And to some degree, they're competing with all the people on their team, you know, because they have their requirements, they have those responsibilities. And as I mentioned, like I have them working on a print book, an interactive book, and an augmented reality book. And that kind of takes them through the semester. So they work together in thinking of a theme, right? Then they work together in divvying out the various tasks. And their various tasks can kind of like shine individually, right? So you're not going to get like a low grade because somebody else didn't pull their weight, you know? So like you're able to kind of like quantify and see their outcomes. They're better overall together. However, if someone does kind of like miss out, there's still these opportunities to get a product, kind of like a minimum viable product across the door. So in making these books, if they're like a couple spreads short, they still have a viable product. And I think that's important for people in the learning phase because they need to see their own contributions. They need to see the weight and value of others. They need to see, well, oh, okay, like, what am I responsible for with this, like, other individual, you know? And, and that was actually a big thing for me was that because, I mean, they're not in the workplace. They're there for their own individual merit, and they have all these outside pressures. For me to tell them that, like, hey, if you got something that's going on outside, you know, like, you could just tap out. And, and it's not going to implicate everybody else. Like just kind of alleviating that pressure for them and still allowing them to achieve, you know? So sure. from a pedagogical sense, like I think that that's really important. Um, and when you're in a workplace, I mean, there's like an entirely different. 
Yeah, completely, completely different. I think uh, I can see how in the learning environment, you need to have a way to evaluate each individual contributor's work. So I, I applaud the work you're doing there. It's very cool. But in, in our environment where we've got to build real products that move the needle on human behavior in the real world, we're going to be able to contribute more as a team than any one of us could ever contribute as an individual, right? Right. Oh, and, then, and that's not to dismiss that. I mean, like the whole notion of, the, of that contribution is also that, uh, you know, I, I mentioned we have people come from industry all the time. We have um, Creative Industry Day. We'll have companies like Google, Microsoft, and they absolutely, they were like, oh, yeah, we want to see, you know, like all this work that you're doing with others. But then also they're like, no, we just want to see your work. And it becomes really, really difficult. Like we need to scope to them. Like we need to get the students prepared to basically demonstrate their efforts. So like they need to be aware of what they are capable of, but then still have that outcome that is, like I said, is that greater sum. So they're able to like showcase, okay, this is the finished product. This is this amazing thing that we put together, right? And like, I mean, let's say if there is, you know, a student that withdrew from the class, you know, they're still able together to pull this across the finish line. So like, I will do this with nine members in a group. So if you run like a smaller sprint, right, you only run two people. If someone drops out, you know, that's 50% of your team gone. Um, so my goal in having the like larger group and having that contributive model, it's almost more like the real life model, you know? So like you're still able to get it across the finish line. You're depending on other people, but you're also still able to utilize your skill sets and kind of taking this forward sure. while still having the opportunity to have your own little slice of ownership on that project. And as mentioned, you know, like, this kind of comes from people like contributing uh, uh, code bits to GitHub. When we worked at Imagic, we would have front end libraries that people would constantly contribute to and then make them better. I mean, even if you look at it like out a little bit more, I mean, the app store exists on Apple's platform because they would not have all the resources and power to, you know, make all the apps that would then live in that ecosystem, right? So people kind of contribute to that in a way. So I think that there are a lot of different models as you look at like platforms and the type of work that, that we have in terms of like how people kind of contribute to existing ecosystems to make those better. Yeah. You're actually going somewhere that I was hoping we would get to because about 30 seconds of browsing through your Twitter feed, it wouldn't take somebody long to realize that you, I hope I'm not putting words in your mouth, I believe you would say, you're an advocate of a product called Figma. And it seems like they've got a really interesting take on what seems to be a trend in the industry, in tools, in how we get products to market specifically around this concept of free to use. You know, there's a parallel in gaming and free to play, but in the tools that we're using to build products, we've got a lot of low or no cost options now that five and definitely back 10 years ago would have been a huge premium to bring into organizations and license fees and whatnot. So I'm, I'm curious with tools being in the midst of this sort of revolution and how we gain the ability to build products and ship them. What are some of the features that you're most excited about that you see today as just table stakes? What, you know, a couple of years ago might've been considered, you know, delighters. What do we have available to us today that differentiates the product people, the designers, the developers, the product managers 
what's exciting to you in this space that's going to make it easier and more exciting to build and ship things? Yeah, it's interesting that you bring it up. So a while back, there was this product. It was called Hackpad. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Um, Dropbox kind of bought it, consumed it, and turned it into this product called Dropbox Paper. When I was at Imagix, we would use Dropbox Paper. And, and fundamentally what it is is just a way to, you know, have like these kind of like markdown formatted pages, very bare bones at the time. And um, it was a key way in which we were able to kind of like work together. And I think it was one of the first instances where I started thinking about like collaborative versus contributive, right? Because the application, it would allow you to just work in a single document and you might say that these kind of collaborative document tools existed before with like Google Docs. Um, however, what was different about Dropbox Paper was that it was just a stream of consciousness. It didn't actually model existing simple sheets of paper that like quantified individual sheets. What it allowed us to do was to better organize our documentation, better organize any new features that we roll out and it was almost like a sketch pad, right? So everybody would go in there, they would add their two cents, we would throw in images, and we would like comment. And over time, we would just build out, you know, either our articles or like a spec out new features, we would create task lists in there. And this, you know, seemingly unassuming software that had a lot of like openness and freedom to it allowed us to organize really, really well, you know, and you can see in the document who led to what in the side so you can see who was engaged who was adding to it you can ping other individuals to elaborate on a concept so i actually reference some of those dropbox paper docs when even just presenting on my work you know and like identifying well you know this is where you know this became a green lit feature for our product and and this is how we kind of organized it and discussed it right so dropbox paper was this first product where I was like, wow, we're collaborating in real time. You can see who's engaged and you get an instance of everything that's going. And it's very different than something like Slack because you're just kind of like shaping away, like you're carving out at this length page and you see it kind of forming. And it's at once, you know, well presented, but also very much work in process. When you get a tool like Figma and, you know, you're talking about it as being, you know, this free software, but to really unlock its potential, you know, it's like you need to pay for it to work in teams uh, and have those files like organized and structured. But I think what Figma did and what I demonstrate my feed is that it makes the process almost like more beautiful, right? Like it revels in the process. I enjoy working on like little Figma files and demonstrating to others how I did that. Or what they did was they identified a lot of friction points in other creation software, and they made those these engaging experiences that you would then want to share with others. I remember opening up Figma for the first time, and as soon as I figured out something, I was like, man, I want to show somebody else. And I understand that as a teacher, I'm like, okay, yeah, I have a natural inclination to do that. However, there was something about the way that the application allowed you to work and you can just as easily invite somebody into that document and work along uh, with you. And I think that was kind of a game changer for me because it started to democratize and make available and make visible a lot of design. Whereas somebody might have an Illustrator file sitting dormant on a desktop, you know, this is just this living file. 
you know, you put in a backslash and write duplicate on that URL and you all of a sudden have a duplicate of that file in your own kind of like repository. And Figma, it allows for you to kind of have this kind of like sketchpad mentality, but also have this nice and finished and polished and organized approach at the same time. You know, so it was very similar to Dropbox Paper where it was a place where you worked, you know, and I think that that was really important. That's a really interesting thought. I think there's parallels that we find in a tool that we're a fan of here uh, called Miro, formerly Real-Time Board, where there is sort of this almost little society inside the document where there is the potential for chaos because you've got 20, 30 people inside the same whiteboard clicking and dragging and resizing, but there's also the shared understanding of these are the rules of the document. These are the rules of organization. And the more tightly you hold it, the, the more you constrict the creativity. But you know, with that potential for chaos, there's also a real potential for creativity too. And we've seen that in those collaborative tools that we use too. It's a really great observation. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, and uh, like yeah, I'm familiar with, with Miro. You know, like with my students, we use Figma in a very similar way. And it's, it's a really cool application. It just allows you to, you know, make your own tools in it. And it's kind of like embracing these technologies that I think, you know, you, you really need to kind of, as a student, show what you did. You know, like we focus very, very hard on intentionality and demonstrating, you know, like how you got from point A to point B. You know, what was your research? You know, like what did you engage in? Like who did you interview? And then kind of like develop this narrative of like your work in progress and work in process. So much of it so to when you're interviewing with a company, so then this way they understand how you work. And that's also a really important thing that I try to impart on my students is demonstrating the story of your work. And once again, like how I'm talking about like contributive, like that was a way for me to even sell that project to the design chair because so many quote unquote, just flat out collaborative projects there's so much controversy around them in regards to like, well, how much were students, you know, participating or collaborating and are they getting all this, you know, credit? And granted, when you're in the real workplace, I mean, it's a totally different beast, but in preparing for that workplace and kind of developing as a designer, as a developer, as, as someone that's going to go into there, you know, people need to be aware of what their contributions are. They need to be aware of where their skill sets are and also like what they're lacking, like what they need to kind of develop more so. And I think it's like an important step to collaboration to understand, well, what am I bringing to the table? Like, what are the skill sets that I'm developing and how am I putting that forward? So it's more or less just kind of formalizing your contribution. If I could pull on that a little bit, I think that's even more important at the organizational level to be able to see who's contributing, who has what skills, what needs to be developed more across your organizations. These contributive tools are definitely on the rise. They're definitely going to play a much bigger role in product development, I think, in the future. So thanks thanks for sharing all that, yeah. all those great ideas. And uh, I just want to add uh, one more thing, too. Sure. So just kind of speaking to intentionality, you'll see that a lot of companies, products, they're making available their design systems, right? These design systems kind of outline how their product looks, feels, work. Google has their material design system. I believe IBM has their, like, carbon system. And... You know, when someone goes into a design role at one of these companies, you know, they're responsible for adhering to it, but also contributing to it. You know, when they have an edge case, they then begin to like make their mark. You know, I've had 
uh, friends who worked on material, they'd be like, oh yeah, that page, that was mine. Like that was my page, like that little bit. And so much of what's important to that is that modularity of those design systems and the way that you can kind of interlock different aspects of it. And, you know, they're, they're nothing new. If you look at like Massimo Vignelli, if you look at like these older modernist designers, you know, they basically came up with systems to streamline the approach to their work. And we're seeing a lot of that and we're seeing a lot of modularity. And with that modularity, that whole notion of contribution is going to be really important. And it's not so much that everybody's kind of making these super bespoke bits. They're adding in and building upon something that's better as a whole. That's brilliant. Yeah, no doubt. We're going to use that quote, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to take us off the reservation a little bit. I actually read your thesis. So I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about that. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear God. <laughs> I initially intended just to skim it, but it was really fascinating and I just got sucked right into it. So I read it. Um, you set out to solve a really, really challenging problem with your thesis that we all have that I don't think anybody has actually solved today. But your contribution to academia here and your contribution to the field was pretty cool. But the quote here that I'm going to take from your thesis is that memory is malleable, lossy and prone to failure. I want to know, and I think my audience would love to hear what some of your key learnings about that problem were, because I think they apply to a lot of product spaces, right? Like, how do you manage a long arrangement of any sort of data or information over time? And how do you arrange it in a useful, powerful way? What are the key learnings that you got in that whole process? Yeah, some of the things that I found most fascinating was just how people kind of like recognize and understand things. And I mean, it has impacted to like how I work as a designer and, and how I work as a professor and how I organize like my classes. And so then this way people have these like points of reference. So one of the key things that I really understood is just the way that we think about events, like life events. You might not remember it, the exact date that something happened, but you remember it according to something that was of stark contrast. So you might say, oh yeah, the summer before so-and-so's wedding, or, you know, this event occurred, you know, um, even as like pre 9-11, right? So you remember these things according to bits of contrast. And I mean, even that kind of speaks to the way that you visually understand things, right? Like the gestalt of things. What we do is we perceive contrast we identify like hierarchy and the same way that you read through a page is almost the same way that you might like navigate like a memory. We kind of engage with these things in a spatial way. So it's important to understand, you know, when things kind of happen. So even if you were to go on like a vacation, you might remember the beginning, you might remember one key event, you might remember the end. So whether that vacation was three weeks or two weeks, your memory of it might only be those kind of key points. If you have a fantastic vacation for two weeks, but that last day, you know, something terrible happened, you know, you almost don't even remember those two weeks that preceded it. And that very much applies to designing an experience for an individual. What are those kind of like key or signature moments that they're going to remember? What are the contrast points that are going to take place for them? What's going to sit back and almost not even be surfaced? And I think that that's really important. You know, a designer deals with sort of managing contrast and hierarchy almost in the same way. Like, what is the key takeaway? 
Another thing that I learned from that is just like this notion of like a cognitive load. Uh, people always say, you know, seven plus or minus two. So nine to five items in your short-term memory. The more you're kind of like engaged in something, the more you fit into those blocks, right? So if you're a keen chess player and you're playing a game of chess, it's not that you're seeing all these moves ahead of time, is that you're looking at larger chunks of the game. You're not looking at individual moves. You're looking at whole sets of moves. You're looking at the whole board, right? So you're able to kind of map your memory into those five to nine blocks of memory, you know, larger sets of moves. And with that, you know, whenever you're designing an experience, you're managing someone's cognitive load. What are they able to like kind of take in? What are they remembering? You know, what are they holding on to as they're kind of moving through that experience? And I think that that's really important because, I mean, if you get to the end of a sign-in process and they needed to remember something from the beginning, you could potentially lose like the sign-up. If you're not properly thinking through a person's attention span when working through an experience, you're going to lose out on that experience. So, I mean, I think that's really important. It's like this uh, designer works on uh, the National Health Service over in the UK, Andrew Duckworth. Uh, he has a really interesting blog where he kind of breaks down some of these UX problems and, and thinking about memory and thinking about accessibility constantly talks about this notion of, you know, one item per page. Oftentimes, you know, we try to make things very complex, but we need to simplify them so they can fit into like one of those memory blocks. That's really cool. We'll have to link the Duckworth resource in the show notes. I wanted to interrupt because you're dancing around something that I've been itching to ask the entire time. One of the things you have in your repertoire is this unique, memorable experience of having a coffee cup illustration. And I wanted to get to this before we run out of time because it's something mm -hmm. so unique. And I don't know if you'd call it a hobby or a calling card or how you'd describe it, but I'm really interested to hear a little bit about how you got into this memorable experience of showing somebody's work in this really one-of-a-kind format. Actually, I'll relate it to exactly what I was talking about. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I started drawing on coffee cups when I was in San Francisco. It started as like a little like procrastinatory habit. While we were like working on uh, Imagix in the early days on like a coffee table, we would go to this coffee shop, come back and uh, in between like just thinking through a problem, I would draw on the coffee cups. At the time, Instagram was fairly new. So I was actually posting them onto my Instagram account, you know, like people would comment on them and I thought it was pretty cool. So I started doing it every day, but thinking of ways to make an impression on people, you know, making these coffee cups and like giving them to like individuals was like much better of a calling card than to say, you know, hey, I'm a designer who lives in San Francisco. You know what I mean? When you're in a city where there's so many like-minded individuals, you have a different way of kind of like discerning yourself. And I mean, it came about in a way that, you know, like it was just a habit that I formed it just became kind of like this thing, but it allowed me to like meet a lot of people, make a lot of connections. Uh, at one point I was um, selling them for a local charity in San Francisco called uh, Project Night Night, where I quantified the selling of one cup to a care package for like a homeless child. That then in turned into a bit of press for me, January of 2014, you know, like everything from like today.com to design taxi was posting my, my coffee cup illustrations, which was kind of cool. Actually yielded a, a, a Tinder date for me. Um, so that was, that was kind of funny. She thought I was catfishing her. And I was like, no, I am the guy from the article. So it was like a, it was a funny experience. I think that's a podcast first, the, the use of the term catfishing. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, it was just a funny thing, but uh, it allowed me to make really, really good friends. You know, I've left cups in like uh, Germany. I got to draw a mural in uh, Istanbul and uh, just the simple notion of drawing on a this 3D surface, which is very different than drawing in a in a book. Right. When you draw on like a sketchbook, kind of more this more expected behavior, it's more personal. People are less likely to come up to you and say something. Whereas if you're drawing on a coffee cup, you know, it's a little bit more outward expression. And yeah, it just allowed me to meet a lot of really cool individuals. Uh, I drew on some wine bottles that actually paid for some uh, wine tabs, some pretty expensive ones. So I think that uh, I, I once paid for a hundred and thirty dollar wine tab with a drawn on wine bottle. Nice. So, yeah. All right. Well, um, this has been great. You've given us a lot of great stuff in here. So I really appreciate you sharing your ideas and your time with us. We always ask uh, one question. So we ask you to recommend a book, maybe something you're reading or something that you refer reference to um, people in the product development design space. Uh, what would you recommend? What are you reading these days? Oh, man, uh, there's a lot. So for somebody in the product space specifically. Or design, product design. Uh, yeah, so what is it? Uh, Design is Storytelling by Ellen Lupton. Ooh, great recommendation. Cool. Yeah, um, I don't know if anybody's recommended that before. And then on the other end of the spectrum, uh, Algorithms of Oppression. All right, good. Well, for our listeners out there, if you're interested in design tools, I think Miguel has one of the finest Twitter feeds on the planet in terms of evaluating and looking at different design tools. It's at Miggy at Twitter. Highly recommend you follow him. Um, is there anything else that you want to promote or anything that you got going on, Miguel? Well, I mean, I just uh, had a gallery show for uh, working with an anthropologist at U of R. Uh, so fertilegroundrock.org. So what we're working on is an anthropology of space making in a hyper segregated city. And uh, we just had our first gallery show and our first zine, which is just a way of uh, making transparent academic process. Uh, nice. So if you go to fertilegroundrock.org, some of our outcomes are going to be shared there. It's a small project that I'm working on, but uh, it means a lot to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for spending all this time with us and for speaking at our conference as well. Appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Appreciate it. Well, that's it for today. In line with our goals of transparency and listening, we really want to hear from you. Sean and I are committed to reading every piece of feedback that we get, so please leave a comment or a rating wherever you're listening to this podcast. Not only does it help us continue to improve, but it also helps the show climb up the rankings so that we can help other listeners move, touch, and inspire the world just like you're doing. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next episode.